Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A-Time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome John Zizzi to the Philosophy Podcast. John is the head coach at Torrey Pines High School and is the director of the West Coast Stars. Uh, John O's Torrey Pines teams have been 155 and 36, and he's had four top 25 finishes, including in 2019 when they were ranked 16th in the country. Um, really fired up to have you on the show, John O. How you doing, man? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, awesome. How's uh, how's life out in uh, San Diego? Not so bad, I bet. Not so bad in quarantine. Worst places to be when you're quarantined. Uh, just got back from the East Coast this weekend and just always remind myself why I live here after it was downpouring and playing in the mud for two straight days. So all good to get back out here. Awesome, man. Well, like I do with most guests, I'd love to start out with your journey, which began back in Winchester, Mass. So you uh, obviously are fired up to see these Patriots continue uh, their winning ways. Um, but uh, give us an idea of what it was like growing up there and how you ended up at Tufts. Yep, and I grew up in Winchester, Mass. Played for the legendary John Perani, who just retired last year. Um, I didn't pick up a lacrosse stick until ninth grade. You know, the sport was sort of evolving back then, and I was a, a huge late bloomer of the sport. Um, and then matriculated to Tufts, which was literally five minutes down the road from Winchester. Had a great career. My freshman year was Mike Daly's first year taking over uh, the program as a head coach. So <clears throat> him and I are, are always pretty tight because we both started together and kind of built that thing from the ground up. When I had gotten there, Tufts was sort of a dumpster fire. Um, and by the time I left, it was really on the up and up. And then basically after being in New England for 23 straight years, just got in the car and drove to the furthest place away I could find, which was San Diego. Um, and then kind of the rest is history. Lacrosse had just become a varsity sport in 2003. I got into graduate school at the University of San Diego Got my first head coaching job with no experience. Um, 
at the University of San Diego High School and then kind of just met the adrenaline guys and things really just evolved and took off. And here we are, 2020, 17 years later, still doing, still doing it. Amazing. And when you went, you did go back to uh, Tufts for an assistant job in 2010 where you guys won the first uh, of Tufts multiple championships. Yep. I, uh, I got the itch to coach college across after having been out here for about seven years and have been growing the game, doing a lot of the youth stuff with adrenaline. I was coaching at the Bishop School in La Jolla, doing a great job there with West Coast, but kind of felt the itch. Moved home. Mike hired me on as the offensive coordinator. And, you know, Tufts had never won a NESCAC championship, let alone, you know, a national championship. It was actually the school's first ever in any sport. Um, and just kind of a bunch of nobodies of nowhere. That team really overachieved. And, you know, looking back, it, it was wild. But, yeah, the one year I was in college, um, it was epic. For 20-1, led the country in offense. Um, and we upset Salisbury. I think Jack Cohen had us down 17-4 to four was his prediction before that game. The inside lacrosse sort of pre preview. <laughs> and we just we came out and just smoked them. It, it, was, it was an epic day. That is awesome. What, um, what did you take from that Tufts experience going back as a coach and sort of seeing the evolution of Coach Daly and how did you take sort of his vision and apply it to the offense? You know, playing for Mike and working with Mike were two different things, but, you know, Coach Daly is, is such a good manager of people and such a good molder of young men. Um, all the cultural focal points that he works on, I really, like, I've used those from the day I got back here. And just being around how he builds culture, how he builds team camaraderie, and just sort of as the GM, that's the thing I took the most from him. Um, schematically, you know, he's probably not my guy, but just culture at the end wins um, in buy-in. So he's just so good at managing people. And that team, like I said, was, was really not very talented. And the fact that we, we got to where we got was simply a matter of his focus on doing the little things extraordinarily well. It was that simple. He's just a process guy. And, you know, it's, it's true. If you can abide to that and subscribe to it, you know, great things can happen. So it was, it was awesome. I loved it. And then, you know, I realized at the age of 30, you know, being a volunteer assistant or second assistant was kind of hard. And I just hightailed it right back to San Diego and the Torrey Pines job open. Um, and that was, you know, the perfect spot for me. So, you know, everything's about timing in this life. And yeah. uh, that's how I am where I am today at this point. Yeah. What an awesome job. I'm excited to talk about that in a second. But before we do, I'd love to hear about the early years of adrenaline. Um, I, uh, I was busy coaching college across until around 09, 2010. And, and meanwhile, um, Alex Cade and, and, and Hockstead and, and who else was it that built that program? Yeah, those three guys kind of came out and built it. And, you know, it's, it's wild because when I got out there, you know, it was just a club sport. There were no youth leagues and Adrenaline kind of put on the first ever summer camp. And we got a lot of buying and a lot of interest and we had flown some guys out from college to work it. And it just kind of took off. And Alex and Steve had sort of the foresight um, to start the first youth league. And that's really what exploded the sports, you know, and it was, it was a risk, you know, you're hiring a bunch of young kids to coach it and show up on Sundays and Saturdays in the morning and be reliable. Um, but the first youth league from first grade to eighth was kind of how this thing got built. Um, and we continued with the camps and I remember coaching a first grade team and a sixth grade team. I was also coaching high school. I was working camps. I mean, you know, it was all hands on deck and, and we were really knee deep in growing the sport. Um, but those guys are the ones that had the vision um, and kudos to them because look, look where the game is now, especially in California. Um, 
you know, as I matriculated out of San Diego, you know, it's, it's grown now. West Coast Stars is what it is. But California specifically is light years ahead of Las Vegas and Arizona and Oregon and Seattle. And it's because those guys were sort of first to market um, and really worked at growing it. Yeah, it's really interesting. You can look at individuals really all over the country that had a massive impact and influence. And the West Coast Stars did that in many ways too, just because it did start to grow up, you know, grow these silos all over the West. And when you look at club teams, West Coast Stars has to be one of the first ones and they are still an elite club team, which is interesting because a lot of them come and go, you know, and, you know, yeah. somebody comes in and competes and they don't keep it going. And you guys have done a pretty good job. I mean, look at your 22 class. How many commits do you guys have in that class? In the 21 class, we have 50, 51 commits, um, you know, which is remarkable just given, you know, the day and age of where we're at um, and all those guys being from non-traditional areas, you know, it's not easy, as you know. Um, so it's, it's a testament to kind of where West Coast Stars is and, and the work and help of all those local regional you know, coaches that have sent us those guys and trusted in us to help them get to the next level. So it, it's a team atmosphere. I mean, we rely on all the club directors from Seattle you know, to San Francisco to trust us with their guys and, and help us get them to the right spot. So it, it's not just us. It's, you know, it's a whole group of people you know, putting this thing forward. But um, you know, I do think West Coast Stars has you know, withstood the test of time. To your point, there's been so many guys that have come and gone. And, you know, the key to it is just we – there were a couple of regional teams back in 05 and 06, and we had been playing each other in these local events. And everyone just kind of looked around and said, if we took the best guys from each of these teams and just made it a team, these kids could actually go back east and actually get recruited. And all of a sudden it became this tangible thing that, like, kids could go hang with East Coast guys and could get recruited. And I think 2005 was the first year we did a team. We had one team, one age group, went back to UMass, and we were just a bunch of nobodies from nowhere and just kicked everyone's ass and just played harder, were more athletic, were tougher, the chip on the shoulder, yada, yada, and, and just sort of spawned. That was sort of the birthplace of all of it. And the next year we came back with it, one team for every grade level. And, and now West Coast Stars is about two teams from fifth grade all the way through 12th. And it's, it's become a machine, and it's – you know, we've gotten some great kids and, you know, it, it's working. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about Tory Pines. Um, you know, I've been there for 10 years. You've had a lot of teams come through. How have you evolved as a coach? Um, you know, big picture, 50,000 feet or anything specific? Yeah, I think, you know, Tory Pines is always going to have talented athletes. You know, I, th I think the school won 13 championships last year. So it's just a place of iron sharpens iron. Every sport is really the best at what they do. Women's volleyball was number one in the nation. I mean, it's, it's a great place to work because everyone around you is the best at their craft. Um, so I think when I got there, that was never the issue of talent. It was all the cultural pieces that were just out of whack. It's a very entitled area. It's a very affluent area. It's a mile from the beach. I mean, you're dealing with a whole lot of variables on top of the fact, you know, we're, it, it's this age of sort of the generation itself, but you know, I had just come from being back with Mike for the year, which is basically like a one-year internship on how to build culture mm -hmm. um, teams. And it was all those things that, that helped us grow the program to where it is today. Um, and last year, we had 29 kids playing in college total over the four years, which was remarkable. Um, and we've won, you know, five titles and we've lost, you know, four in the finals by a goal. So we're always in that mix. Um, but I think if you ask anyone culturally, kids are just bought in, kids work hard. Um, and, and kids are just sort of beasts. It's, you know, we've, it's like an army. Um, and I think, you know, 
by doing all of the little things and focusing on being better people and all the community service that we do and all the off field work, you know, the lacrosse part, I've never worried about that. As much as I love talking schematics with you and watching film and I'm such a nerd about it, like my biggest worry always in focus with my kids is just the cultural component um, in what they're doing off the field. So that's 500 feet away snapshot. It's we've changed the culture there since when I came in in 2011. It's awesome. How many kids do you have in the program? How many teams do you have? We have two teams. You know, we have, we literally have 50 kids on varsity and we'll probably have, you know, 40 on JV. Um, you know, we, we get up and down and practice. We do full field stuff all day. We have full on scout teams. I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's a luxury to have all that, right? Guys are injured all the time. We always have plenty of guys to step in. You know, you got five or six goalies in practice. It's, it's a luxury that not a lot of high schools have. Uh, but I will say we've actually had a lot of attrition too, because it's demanding. We ask a lot from our kids, um, time-wise, you know, extras-wise, um, off-season-wise. So, it, you know, plus our lifting program. So we've actually had a lot of kids that just said, you know what, I, this isn't for me. So, you know, we probably could have had more if it was a little bit more laid back, but I just don't think that's, you know, something I could deal with. Having – having a big roster like that makes it a lot like a college program and it probably prepares those kids pretty well for what it's going to be like, you know, to play on a scout team, how important it is to, you know, give the first man down a great look um, and how to really get up and down and learn the full field game. How do you maximize that within your program? I mean, I mean, you know, as a college, former college coach, like you want to make practice more intense and harder than the actual game. So when they get to the game, it, it's not as sort of nerve wracking. And so our practices are insane. We do, Every night we'll do positional work. We'll do skill work, skill development work, at least a half an hour to an hour every night of just individual positional or skill work. And then the other hour and a half is we're up and down. You know, we're, we're managing scout teams. We've got seven coaches. So we've got guys appropriated all over the place. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to have, you know, we have Jules Henningberg and Garrett Apple coaching with us as well. So we've got some young guys that those guys usually play on our scout teams, which is phenomenal for the kids to be. A, with them, and B, watching, oh, my God, look at Garrett Eppel play these passing lanes and scoop ground balls, and look at Jules' footwork and precision, and having that to model while they play on the scout teams is so invaluable for our young guys. So, you know, they're as bought in as the guys that are, are playing on game day um, because we make, it, we make it aspirational. We make it fun, and we make it competitive, and, and they're as important to the team and the cog, you know, as the starters. And you got to do that because guys 30 through 50, if not bought in, can ruin your team, can ruin your culture. Do you guys find a way to play B teams and be able to get your 30 through 50 playing against, you know, varsity competition that would be more of a, a level that you wouldn't schedule for the TP varsity? Yeah. So I think, you know, we've always kind of like when you were in Colorado, you're kind of mandated to play X amount of games locally. And so yeah. we're, if we left our starters in, we're winning those games, you know, 15, 20 goals, just, just cause. So those are the games locally that, they're getting a lot of playing time in and then we're scheduling, you know, boarding schools and the Colorado schools and San Ignatius and anyone that's anyone out West that will play us um, that can travel. So yeah, we make it work. There's probably seven or eight games that all those guys can get considerable playing time in, which, which is great. Yeah. That's awesome. And you guys do play one of the top schedules in the country. Um, number one in the West multiple years. Um, yep. How do you, um, what are your, what are your biggest out of state rivalries? 
or in-state rivalries. Yeah, I think the San Ignatius rivalry is is epic, and it has been since you know way before I even got there. And I think if you ask Chris Packard, he'd say the same thing. It's it's sort of always been you know we don't have a state championship in California. Unfortunately, CIF hasn't gotten to that point, sadly. So yeah, it's always kind of been this unofficial state championship. Um, we've had great battles with the Regises and the Cherry Creeks of, of Denver. We've played them, I think, every year since I've been there. Um, and then, you know, we played Deerfield last year, which was great. And we played Nobles and we've been able to get some boarding schools in Lawrenceville. And we, you know, we beat all of those teams, which um, Richfield, Connecticut, those are huge wins for not only our program, but for the West in general, um, yeah. you, you know, to beat teams like that. So, you know, the old model of New England teams went on to Florida for spring break. Well, why don't you just come to San Diego? You know, it's just as nice and you can play some good teams and get all those same perks. So we've been trying to get guys to come out for their spring breaks and it's been awesome for us. We've been lucky to have them fly out. That is awesome. Um, so would you consider yourself uh, an offensive coach, a defensive coach, or uh, really both sides of the ball? I'd say offense. No, I don't know anything about defense. Offense and, and just kind of, you know, the big picture stuff. And now that I have Jules there, it's, it's, I've been able to take my foot off the gas a little bit with being just the O coordinator and be able to manage things a little bit more, um, but offense. And I love, you know, we have Matt Brown come out every year, do clinics for us. I mean, he, he's sort of like my guy and, you know, there isn't a better guy coaching offense than Brownie. So, you know, we have a lot of sort of similar motions to them, some window dressing stuff, some overload stuff, our four man weave that we run. It's, you know, a lot of stuff that, you know, Denver's doing and, you know, I've sort of built my stuff around coaching like Matt does with the offense and, um, you know, it's plug and play. We have a lot of athletic kids that aren't as skilled as the Denver guys. So we have to augment some stuff, but you know, I, I do love coaching and talking offense with whoever. Um, but, you know, ironically, Torrey Pines is, is more built like the Brown Virginia model. It's, it's a lot of athletes. It's a lot of two way guys. So, you know, transition ends up becoming where we kill people because we just have so many bodies and so many athletic kids that half the time, you know, we're just scoring in sub game or transition. So. What are some of the things that you've learned from Brownie that you've taken to your uh, Torrey Pines program? Just, a, you know, a lot of the, the off ball movement, you know, with, with the sort of the weave motion stuff and a lot of the window dressing with the overloads, just, you know, just getting defensemen kind of out of, out of sort of position and sort of off kilter a little bit um, just with, with simple deception stuff. Um, and, and you know that he was sort of the pioneer of all those pairs offenses and stuff before anyone was doing that. We were running that back in 2011 before, you know, Penn State started doing it, everyone, and now everyone and their mom is running pairs. But, um, you know, just isolating and finding matchups. And then off ball, I mean, it's really difficult. No one plays hoops out West. So, you know, teaching kids how to play off ball is you almost have to force them to do it and, and give them, like, routes and, and places to go. So those offenses are so fluid that everyone's got to be moving, and, and kids end up finally learning how to do that. I mean, as you know, like the, the backside – motions are as important as the ball side motions. Um, and it's like, it's hard to teach school kids, you know, those things. It's kind of hard to find that balance between running a set look that gives you scripted spacing and manipulates where their slides are, but then can morph and flow right into, you know, kind of uh, that, that, that weave type of motion that you see out of Denver. Like they'll, they'll run specific stuff to initiate, but then once it gets rolling, they just play. Um, how do you teach that? So we, in, in, you know, as I alluded to earlier, when we're in our, you know, positional work and in, in our skill building sessions, we're doing things that those guys are going to be doing in the offense, you know, where they're dodging from, you know, points of attack, you know, 
where where they should be dodging from, where their feet should be. I mean, it's, you know, you put them in those spots and then it just becomes automatic when they're in the flow of six on six. And so, you know, get there, there was a time when I was a young coach, we were just doing all these drills. I would find drills online and keep doing them, but it's like, you need to pick drills that are going to be specific to what they're going to do, you know, parts to the whole. Um, and that's, I think where, where I've evolved a lot is it's like, we're just doing all these random drills. This is nothing like our offense though. So what, what's sort of, um, and so we become, you know, like you talk about a lot, we become a much heavier wing dodging team where, you know, the old model is still down that alley, fire off a sidearm shot from no angle. And it's like that those days are kind of over. I mean, yeah. you know, the team has evolved and it's, you got to be smarter. Um, so yeah, just working on in, in the individual and skill building parts of things that we're going to do you know, in six on six. Love it. So um, you are always sharpening your saw and uh, you are a subscriber to the JM3 coaches training program. I told you that the Andy Towers AT look was um, invented maybe the greatest play of all time that Andy invented. I don't know, sometime in the nineties, I think he invented it when he was still at Yale. Um, but, um, <laughs> how has, how has sharpening your saw in that program and specifically that, that, uh, that look impacted you? Yeah, I think I'll never forget that. I was sitting at a coffee shop on a rainy day. We were kind of in a rut offensively and I was just going through all your videos. I just, I had been there for like four hours and I came upon that play. I kind of liked it. Video looked great. I put it in and we had practiced it for a day or two. We're playing our big rival, La Costa Canyon, probably the best rivalry um, in the whole state, in every sport, Torrey Pines, LCC, it's just wild places packed thousands of people. And we're down, I want to say we're down six to one at halftime. Crazy. I put that play in and we score literally eight unanswered goals in a row. And Jamie, literally each different goal, we hit a different look, whether it was the skip guy, we hit it, you know, through the adjacent pass and he weaved over the top. Then he threw it, you know, wing to wing, whatever it was, it was every format you could use in that play we scored a different way um and from that play our kids you know how kids are they're like this is the best play ever and then the confidence level just rose and we ended up running it forever eventually some teams started scouting it it became a little bit more challenging um but i swear to god man you bailed me out that night that was you know that was an epic night for our, our program in general and just i i can't thank andy towers enough for that <laughs> But, but no, the JM3 thing, I, you know, I've, I've gone every year, done a professional development trip. I usually go for a week and a half, similar to your RV trip. And I go visit some schools, check out the facility, watch practice, you know, meet with coaches, you know, watch film, pick their brain. I'm, I'm always trying to learn and listen. But, you know, your, your thing is that without having to go anywhere. Um, so it's also kind of nice and cost effective to just sit in my house and be able to see all the same stuff on my computer. So, yeah, it's been awesome, the program. Very cool. Hey, let's talk a little bit about um, player development. How do you, you, you referenced how you really like to, you do a ton of stick work and stuff like that. How do you view player development, um, both 50,000 feet and then, you know, how you dig into it? Yeah, when we're big on extras, right? And, and so it's like kids have to be doing stuff outside of practice too. And we've hung our hats on that and we've equipped them with making sure they know, you know, it's practicing the right things to do too. You know, it's like perfect practice is important. So they have a plan what to do outside of our practice, whether it's wall ball or whatever, but, but not only getting reps, but getting proper reps. Um, but like I said, some coaches just like to get up and down and roll the balls out. Like we spend so much time on just, you know, starting from the bottom up with just how you're holding the stick and fundamentals and, you know, making sure that the reps that they're just not rushing through reps to do them incorrectly. Like we're always teaching and it's been, 
a focal point. I think our kids kind of get annoyed at a certain point, but doing things the wrong way and doing them fast just to get them done is, is not going to benefit anybody. So there's a lot of emphasis on it. And like I said, having, you know, Jules Henningberg coaching the offense with me, he, he's all about the footwork and, and the dodging component and where you're attacking and, and all the ways that you're using your feet um, and deception with your upper body and stuff. And so I tell you, it's, it's, it's like a science. We've, we've sort of like undressed it to, you know, the bottom up and, and kids just want to get out there and run around. It's like, we got to start here, you know, to ultimately get up there. And so, you know, we've just made it our priority. You know, some college coaches don't want to spend more than 10, 15 minutes on just skill building. You know, we do, um, especially at the high school level. Like it's, you have to. With a guy like Jules, is, is he teaching like the, the highest level of sort of cutting edge dodges and shots and things that, are, that he's doing? And how does he do that? Yeah, he, you know, it's been great because he's, he's evolved too, but he's, you know, he's doing it in a way that's comprehensible. You know, he's not overloading them and he's picking and choosing his spots and, it's, and he's literally doing it in slow-mo. So it's like they get it and then he'll increase the speed so that he's not just, I mean, it's, you, you got to make it comprehensible and, and dumb it down for them a little bit. But, you know, he's been great. And like I said, him in practice and him in these drills, doing it with the kids, the model is there. They, they can see, oh my God, that's what it looks like. So it's, it's, it's both. He's teaching it and he's modeling it, the behavior. And it's, I swear it's been really the most helpful tool for us having him and Garrett up while actually playing and practice and doing the drills with the kids. Yeah. Watching uh, Garrett Apple's posture and head turn and the way his precision with the way he approaches and literally just gent almost gently puts his, his lead poke right on your, right on your sternum. It's, it's actually pretty, pretty wild. He's unbelievable. And gosh, he, he's like the nicest guy alive. But when you see him on the field, I mean, he's a killer. He just is a killer. So, but yeah, no, it's, it's been a luxury having those two guys and the rest of our staff. So it's, you know, the, the more guys you can, you know, Jules is able to pull a guy out and work with him one-on-one -on -one while I'm still running the drill. And so we have a lot of luxuries that I don't think a lot of high school programs have, which, you know, thank God. How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philacrosophy podcast, my Inside the Eight podcasts, or my Lacrosse Weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jamefreesports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the coaches training program. It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have Division I men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV, and youth. For players, I've created JM3 Player Academies, which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created JM3 Recruiting Portal, where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars, and other interviews, and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. Let's talk a little bit about um, West Coast Stars. Um, how do you take your philosophies um, that, you, that you've built as a coach and then apply it to the, to the club world, especially in a, in a situation where you probably don't get to practice as much as you do with TP, because obviously these kids are coming from all over the place. Yeah, no, it's difficult. You know, like I said, my biggest focal point in the high school and why I love it is it's the day in and day out and the relationships and the growth of how they come in and how they leave you. The club thing is a little bit more difficult in a regional world. Then you go to the national level and West Coast Stars has kids from, you know, at times eight to 10 states. 
So the challenge is different. The talent level is through the roof, but now it's like, how are you going to be able to get any sort of cohesion um, in any sort of team play when you're just rolling into town for weekends with no practice, like you said? Um, and that's a completely different and unique challenge in and of itself. Um, and, and so it's a little bit hard to manage. Like, you know, people are always like, oh, like, you have so much talent. It's like, yeah, but you guys practice together for like months at a time. So, you know, whether you're talking to the Mad Lax guys or the Massachusetts guys, it's like, we might maybe have a tiny bit more talent, but you guys have had, you know, 40 practices. I mean, it, it's pick your poison. So it's, it's challenging. You're doing a lot on Friday nights. You know, we're sending out stuff via Zoom and email to try to get guys on the same page. Um, but it's a challenge. And then you have all the time change challenges and the weather challenges for our guys. I swear to God, it snows and rains at every event we go to. So the club, the club piece is, is definitely unique. Um, but like I said, we've, we've been able to make it work and, you know, guys really make bonds with their friends and look forward to the events. Um, you know, especially the guys that have been with us since the fifth, sixth, seventh grade, um, over time, the fluidity finally builds. And like this 2021 class, one of the best classes we've ever had. So. Yeah. 50 kids. Yep. Across. Unbelievable. We have an open roster, Jamie. So it's like, we'll go to three events in the fall and, and usually four or five in the summer. And we understand because we're working with all these regional directors, Hey, the advanced guys have something that weekend or Seattle's going here. It's like, all right, let's find new guys from our 50 man stable that can play this weekend. And so we usually like to open it to 50 or 55 kids total that we will can help and can fill the rosters. And, you know, it's fluid. And so that's also a challenge, right? Like last weekend we played an event and now five guys are missing from that weekend. It's five new guys. So it, it's challenging, but we're able to help so many more kids and ultimately your legacy just in life, let alone business is, is how many people can you help? Yeah. So it's, you know, we don't win every tournament probably because of that, but we have more kids in college than any program in the entire country and, and by a lot. Um, let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like one of the things that you do such a great job with is, is advocacy. And that's, that's a uh, testament to your work ethic. It's a testament to your reliability from a college coach perspective, your ability to evaluate and, and really give people an honest, you know, hey, this kid, this is what you're getting with this kid and, and people believe you. Um, how, do you how do you sort of uh, go about building that and, and how do you feel like that's been, been positive for West Coast Stars? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I mean, one, I've been doing this for so long. I, I kind of know who will and won't make it and, and I – been able to not only with all the relationships that I've been able to forge and all the professional development I've done, I, I kind of have a good idea of culturally how most programs are run and where kids might fit well in one culture and they wouldn't in another or geographically how it fits. So it's, it's more than just this kid's good enough to play division one or in the Ivy. It's this kid's a, a killer. He'd be great at Yale or this kid, you know, is really all about a two way midi transition. He'd be great at Brown or what, whatever it is. So it's, there's so many components to, knowing what coaches look for at that level, knowing the culture of a specific program and the way they play. I do my best to try to find matches to all those things rather than just calling some guy and going, Hey, this kid's pretty skilled. Um, Cause it's more evolved than that. And I try to be better than that. Um, and two for the local San Diego guys and Torrey Pines kids, I know what I put those kids through not only in the spring, but year round. And so I can speak, you know, double to them. What's their day in and day out. What's their work ethic like? I mean, if they can handle what we're doing to them, I know they'll be fine at the next level. So I can speak to just the day to day too, which at that point I can call anyone and go, this kid is or isn't going to make it. Um, so, you know, and I rely, you know, the West coast stars guys, we make them play at least two or three events in each season so that we can actually, it's not even about, 
it's more just about if you play two or three times, at least I can speak to you. I get to know you. You can't just show up for one event and expect us to be able to help you. That's sort of unrealistic. Um, I don't know anything about you and it could have been a great weekend or an off weekend for you. So, you know, we've tried to make continuity with West Coast Stars more sort of mandatory just so we can help. Yeah. Um, but again, the relationships, you know, Jamie, it's just like business. It's like, you, you, you know, you do things the right way. People will come back to you and trust you and you can build forward. And as soon as you screw a guy or, you know, do things the wrong way, you're toast. And I've just avoided, you know, I've always erred on the side of, eh, I think this kid could be good. I'm not sure or no chance. And, you know, I think that's kind of why I'm still doing what I'm doing 15 years later. Yeah, it's awesome. And it does feel good to help kids and to get those emails of a, of a kid committed um, and to help them along the way and, and to be an advocate, to be an advisor. And it's a lot of work too. I mean, you know, I, 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 we've been wanting to talk about a bunch of different things for the last month and you've just been so jammed up. I mean, how busy has it been in this, uh, since September one for you? Yeah, it, it's, it's busy. I mean, and gosh, I mean, this recruiting cycle, this fall has gone faster than anyone before, which I think is almost ironic given that no coaches were even watching lacrosse at all this summer live. So it's, it, it's been a lot in a hurry and I'm actually kind of shocked by it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been really busy. And like you said, I, it's awesome. It's rewarding to help kids, especially the ones that really deserve it. Um, and that really work to get to what they want. I mean, and just fulfill sort of their dreams. So yeah, it, it is, it is a lot of work though. And it's, you know, a lot of parent involvement, a lot of back and forth. And, you know, I just, <clears throat> it, it's a good thing, but it's never ending. So, you know, after you've helped the first five or six kids, now you're into wave two and you've got the next 10 kids to help. And it's basically just like a domino effect of, of how this all works. Um, so it's, I feel like it's like watching the stock market. It's like, all right, he took a goalie, they're out. They took a face off, right, off the list, they're out. And you're just like watching this like Ty Zander's chart of who's where and trying to, <laughs> trying to see who still has space or, where you could fit a kid and yeah, it's, it's challenging at times. It is. And it is like the stock market too, because, because your stock can go up and down. Oh yeah. So, you know, you gotta like, you know, the bottom line is your stock needs to be going up. That means you have to be getting better. And that's what I tell everybody. I mean, like there's nothing to talk about in recruiting if you're not good enough. And the best thing coaches like is to see someone like, man, every time I see that kid, he's better. Yep. No, no one has ever done that better than Bubba Fairman in 2016 before the Under Armour games. I mean, he had gotten some calls. He was committed to Navy. was sort of like his only offer. After the Under Armour games, I've never seen a kid, everyone in the country. It was like, oh, my God. I mean, he put on a show that weekend at, you know, arguably the best sort of tournament of the summer at the time. And, yeah, you're not lying about, you know, event to event. Stock, stock was surging after that. So, I yeah. think so let's talk a little bit about recruiting specifically uh, with the 22s. Um, so how many, how many kids, it, it has been faster than ever. How many kids would you say are committed right now? Do you know offhand? Yeah, I think we have six. We'll have a few this week, um, which is a lot. Gosh, we're not even in October yet. So, you know, and again, for our kids, what's the, the challenge is, hey, I don't really want you to commit blindly. You got to go visit a campus, even though the coaches can't meet with you. I'd like you to go step foot. So we probably have more. It's just, we're waiting for a few kids to go visit, um, yeah. which is great. And, and honestly, Jamie, it's become even more challenging in 2022 because guys are taking much smaller classes yeah. because of the advent of the fifth year and the advent of transfers and um, the Ivy league, not allowing the fifth year. So, you know, it's become our job has become harder and harder because there's fewer and fewer spots right now. No doubt. Everybody's taking a smaller class in, of the 22s. Every 21 that wasn't committed, 
probably had to become a 22. And then there's yep. going to be a lot of 22s that are probably going to have to become 23s. Uh, four exactly. years of five classes is what we're facing right now. Well, that or they'll have to become Division three guys, and that'll help Division three. But the other thing with fewer spots is there's also a lot less money. You know, so kids that need scholarship money or whatever, like there just isn't as much as there normally is as you're spreading out scholarships over five years yeah. instead of four, obviously. So. You're going to have to pretty much save a, a full tuition for a Michael Sowers. Yep. You know, Splinter right. Sowers or whoever those guys are. Yeah, of course. And so then you're down to God knows what's left in, in the bank at that point. Yeah. Um, it seems like, you know, not only with West Coast Stars, but nationally, there's been more kids committed at this time, you know, by a long shot. I don't know what the numbers were, but it was, it was like twice as many uh, a week ago. Um, so it's, it, it is going fast. Um, I do think that there's going to be those that take their time and leave spots open. And so people don't need to panic, but it is, it is definitely a, it is a bummer for these 22s um, to, to not have a chance to ever be seen live. Uh, but I do think on the other hand, coaches are doing more in-depth homework through film than they could have done without film, without with, with the old model, which was 99% in person. Yeah, I think the rewind button, you know, is crucial here, right? Like the coaches are watching film and the ability to hit rewind and go back and watch stuff, um, you know, is important to them. And it's become a lot more efficient for those guys. I think a lot of the guys have enjoyed it. And between watching film much more thoroughly and calling guys, you know, high school and club coaches that they trust to get more background on the intangibles that they can't see live, um, they're, they're doing their job in, in, you know, a much more efficient manner and with less travel and less cost. Um, you know, I don't know. Some some of the old school guys probably want to be on the field and and hear the noises and and see who can communicate and see the posture and and see the attitude and all the things that don't show up in the stat column. But I think there's a lot of coaches that actually are enjoying this new wave of recruiting. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that you ask any coach, you know, coach, what'd you think of the game last, you know, um, just now, win or lose, they're gonna say, I'll let you know after I watch the film. Course, of it's course. the same in recruiting, it's just that it wasn't viewed that way. It was viewed as we need to be there, and it's by the way, it's fun to be there. Guys like being there, and it is fun to be at a big game and to see the, the sights and sounds, and you know, hearing a kid communicate or watching him interact in the huddle. But, but at the end of the day, you, you know, from coaching practice or a game, you, you learn what actually happened once you watch the film because whatever you thought isn't true. 100%. And that goes both ways. You thought a kid was great. Maybe he wasn't that good. And if you thought a kid stunk, maybe he actually did a lot of things when you watch the film that you didn't notice. So I do think to your point about recruiting with, with the advent of, of COVID and inability to take an ACT or an SAT test, the Ivy leagues are a little bit hamstrung because none of these kids uh, have a test or will anytime soon. So I think those guys will be coming around poaching a lot of kids down the road. Mm -hmm. You know, if these kids ever can take a test and have a score and, you know, be admissible. It's like, I can see a lot of that happening, you know, in a couple months or maybe even next summer with the 22s. Do you have any other thoughts on recruiting and what it's going to look like next summer? Um, any sort of projections on how things sort of shake out with the classes of 22, 23, 24? Yeah, I think you're just going to start seeing a lot more kids taking gap years. That would be my guess, right? And so a lot of the Ivy League freshmen that are already admitted have opted out and taken a gap year right now. So I've got a couple of them that are home. And, you know, I think whether kids reclass and go to prep school, I think more kids are just going to reclass and just do a gap year. And what that's going to look like, I don't know. 
Um, but I think you're going to see a lot more of that just, just because whether you can get a spot or not, you're also dealing with 65 kids in a roster. It's advantageous for a kid to just reclass, get bigger, faster, stronger, more mature, yeah. and then come, come to a team, you know, that isn't as big and full. So I think you'll start seeing a movement in that direction, you know, albeit probably small, but you'll start seeing it more often. Yeah, totally. And a gap year is interesting too, because I mean, classically, everybody would take a PG year, which is an amazing life opportunity. Uh, but a gap year can be too. What is it? What is a gap year? Well, gap year is anything you want it to be. A gap year is, you know, travel service, internships, and of course, training. And, uh, it, or you can sometimes take classes of different kinds, but you, you could really map out a year that could be incredibly positive. And obviously being a 20 year old freshman is going to help is going to be something that, that any coach would rather have a 20 year old freshman than a 19 year old freshman anyway. Yeah. I mean, kids can be lifting, they can be playing club lacrosse and getting tons of reps. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I went to prep school at PG today, Avon. It's, there's a lot of great, you know, merit to it. But in the day of COVID, what does that even look like? You know, kids are ostracized, kids are spread out and separate. There are no sports even right now. So I think the PG year right now is probably on hold just because what does that even look like, you know, with COVID schooling uh, at the moment? So like I said, I think the gap year is going to become a lot more advantageous and cost effective for kids. I honestly think the other thing that we're going to see, it's already happening anyways, but as you talk about a smaller 22 class, everything is going to, is becoming more competitive, both because of COVID, but also just because of the development of the game. I mean, the, the, the quality of lacrosse is just getting better. And it's not like an every five year noticeable difference. It's almost like an every couple year noticeable difference in how many unbelievably skilled kids are coming out all over the place. Yeah, I don't know if that's just a testament to, to guys picking up sticks at earlier ages or, or playing more, um, but the skill level has definitely gone through the roof. I mean, the one thing I worry about is just the skill development is, is so, you know, vastly improved, but it's, it's, I hope it's not at the cost of kids playing multiple sports, only because, you know, even at Tory, it's like everyone has become so good at their craft, but fewer and fewer kids are playing multiple sports. I mean, the football thing has become such a machine at our school that guys are stuck just playing football and lifting year round and we're losing a lot of those guys. And then our kids are doing lots of club stuff and just disenfranchised with having to put in the same kind of effort in another sport where it's just their second sport, which, which I get, but you know, at the opportunity cost of their, they're quitting now. And so the skill sets that you gain from playing hoops and football and, and soccer, you know, I, they're important and they're, they're helpful and they're why some kids are actually good at lacrosse because you can tell a multi-sport athlete almost immediately um, by the way, they do certain things, whether it's playoff ball, how tough they are, how good they are, how, how hard they hit, um, and just their overall coachability, um, having been coached by multiple different coaches at multiple different sports and scenarios. So I, I just hope that that doesn't go to the wayside, the multiple sport thing. Yeah, sadly, I think it is kind of going to the wayside, and it's hard. It's just so competitive, um, you know, that even if you wanted to play lacrosse and soccer, sometimes – you can't play soccer if you don't play only soccer and, you know, basketball, anybody can play pickup sports, but yep. to play competitive sports, um, you know, it's, it's, it is really hard. That's the next thing, Jamie. It's like, all right. So if the football guys want you 11 months of the year, and if the hoops guys need you to be working on your skills and playing 11 months of the year, and I get it, you can't do that. Then the next thing is, all right, we've got to be having some kind of, you know, playing three by playing pickup hoops regularly, 
playing flag football, whatever it is that you're still getting some sort of feel of cross training um, that just needs to be worked in in some capacity. So I'm with you. Every coach is demanding. We have a couple guys that, that are soccer players that play for us. They show up here and there. They miss practice because of club soccer. It's, you know, it's high school. I can't like cut them. It's not ideal, but I get it. And they're still helpful to our team. But, you know, every coach is demanding the same thing from their kids and it's a tug of war. So I, I do feel bad a little bit. It's not like back in the day when you and I were growing up, we all played three sports in high school. And in the summer we were playing things that were always just outdoors playing something. And that's, you know, that's John, so great to have you on the show. Those oh, were the days, really man. Appreciate it. You've done unbelievable things with both Torrey Pines as well as with the West coast stars. And if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Uh, email is kind of all over the place and cell phone. I'm, I'm pretty available and I love just helping anyone that I can that wants to. So I'm pretty reachable. What's your email? Uh, Jono.zissi at adrln.com. Awesome. Jono, thanks a lot, man. That was a blast. Awesome, Jamie. Take it easy.